Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 103. The superscription here says simply, of David. And I see no compelling reason to doubt that. Now, as for tone or feel, it comes off as less intensely personal than, say, for example, Psalm 51 or Psalm 38. Derek Kidner explains why that might be. He says, it is a hymn rather than a private thanksgiving. And we are reminded that David was the founder of the great choirs of Israel, closed quote. So David probably wrote Psalm 51, for example, as a private poem. It was a devotional expression. There may be appropriate uses of Psalm 51 in the corporate liturgy, but it does not appear to have been crafted for the public liturgy. But Psalm 103 does give us that impression. David talks to himself, then his scope widens to include the whole congregation, and then at the end he's summoning the entire cosmos to join him in the praise of the Lord. So it gives every indication that it was intended for public corporate use. Listeners of a certain generation will perhaps recall that Psalm 103 was the original inspiration for one of the best-known hymns of the 19th century, Praise My Soul, the King of Heaven, by Henry Francis Light. There are several lines and phrases in that hymn of corporate praise that are obviously lifted directly out of this hymn of corporate praise, and David, I'm sure, would be delighted about that. In terms of the content, David is rehearsing the gracious actions and interventions of the Lord, and he is extolling the glorious character of the Lord and calling on himself, the congregation, and the entire cosmos to respond to those actions and attributes with gratitude and praise. Structurally, I've mentioned the broadening scope. In the first five verses, David is speaking to himself. In the middle section, he's focused on the congregation. And then in the final four verses, he is addressing the entire cosmos with himself as part of that whole. Bless the Lord all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Psalm 103, verse 22. So that's the basic meaning and layout of the psalm as written. But scholars tend also to be interested in the psalm as arranged within the Psalter as a whole. This psalm was obviously written in the time of David, but the Psalter as a whole did not find its final form until the time of the exile. And so commentators will often zoom out and look at where a psalm, this psalm in particular, is placed and what other psalms are placed with it in the same general neighborhood. I think I've mentioned before that there are five books in the book of Psalms, mirroring the five books of Moses. And there's some obvious logic behind which psalms are placed where in the composition as a whole. In very general terms, the first two books of Psalms cover events in David's life, though not necessarily sequentially. A lot of the biographical superscriptions occur in the second book of Psalms. Book 2 concludes with Psalm 72, which is sort of a high-water mark, where David is handing things off to his son Solomon. 
Book three, however, contains a group of psalms that reflect upon Israel's decline. The last psalm in book three is Psalm 89, which is actually quite depressing. The psalm talks about all the promises that God had made to David, and it looks back on the times when things were going really well. But then listen to how it ends. Verses 38 to 39 say, But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. He goes on to ask in verses 46 to 47, How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of men. Closed quote. So book three in the book of Psalms ends with a bit of a thud. The house of David is in ruins, and the psalmist, speaking from exile, doubts very much whether he will live to see the promises of God to Israel fulfilled. He's, he's feeling pretty low, but he hasn't lost faith. The last words of the psalm in verse 52, Psalm 89, verse 52, are, Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. So I'm pretty down, Lord. I, I don't see how this will all work out, but I believe in you. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. That's the end of book three. Then in book four, which begins in Psalm 90, there is a reflection on the nature of eternity and the perspective needed to understand the providence and the purpose of God. So book four zooms way out, as it were, and says, let's look at the big picture. Let's look at the whole board, not just the last couple of moves. Yes, we are sitting here at an all-time low. Yes, we've made some terrible mistakes and missteps. But let's remember who God is, and let's remember what he's done for us in the past. That's the general thrust and feel of book four. Then in book five, we have the response of the son of David, the Messiah, using David's words to the questions, cries, and concerns of the people in exile. All right, that's the big picture. Now let's zoom back in on Psalm 103. Psalm 103 is near the end of book four. It's the prelude to the concluding package of Psalms in book four. So Gordon Wenham says here, Psalms 104 to 106 are a poetic recapitulation of the Pentateuch, Genesis to Deuteronomy, close quote. So Psalms 104 to 106 are a sort of reboot, a poetic reboot of the storyline. And Psalm 103 is the setup for that. Wenham again says here, Psalm 103 celebrates God's steadfast love, which was demonstrated in God's pardoning of two of the nation's greatest sins, the golden calf and David's adultery. If Moses and David experienced God's mercy so many years ago, may not exiled Israel hope for another act of divine mercy? Closed quote. All right, so hopefully you're seeing that. Book three detailed Israel's catastrophic failure as the covenant people. They went from the mountaintop of Psalm 72 to the absolute valley, the absolute nadir of Psalm 89. So there can be no hope for them in the future, right? Wrong, the psalmist is saying. By placing Psalm 103 here, the editor of the book as a whole is making the point that God is a forgiving God. He is 
reminding the listener, the singer, the reader. He's saying, God is like a father. So yes, yes, his chastisements can be very severe, but not so as to kill us. He's trying to form us and grow us and make us the people we were created and intended to be. God isn't done with us. God doesn't hate us. He loves us and he will rescue us and remake us into what he promised we would one day come to be. That's the point that's being made in the arrangement. And it, in the overall scope of the storyline, it felt to the editor, to the redactor, we sometimes uh, call this individual, felt like a good time to remember God's essential character and committed love for his covenant people. So with all that being said, hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. As I mentioned already, in these first five verses, David is speaking to himself. He is stirring up his soul for thanksgiving and worship. The way to do that is to remember all the benefits, all the kindnesses and mercies you've received from the Lord. Like your grandparents probably used to say to you, count your blessings, right? Name them one by one, count your many blessings, see what God hath done. In the Bible, forgetting is a serious spiritual issue. We're warned about it very early on. In Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 to 16, Moses says, Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up. And you forget the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. Closed quote. Prosperity tends to make us proud, and it tends to dampen and suppress our worship. That's not a good thing, obviously. So if God sees that, he will ordain a process of remembering that is often very unpleasant. So do like David does here. Stir yourself up to thankfulness and worship. Remember what God has done and start with the issue of your forgiveness. David lists five benefits that he's focused on here. He recalls that God forgives, God heals, God redeems, God crowns, and God satisfies. That's a comprehensive list, and it begins in exactly the right place. W.S. Plumer says here, All human blessedness, either permanent or important, must be based in forgiveness of sin. This is the first gift of God to the penitents, but it is not the last. It is merely the opening of of the house of mercy, closed quote. I love that. Being forgiven opens for us the house of mercy. It puts us in the place to receive other things from the hand of our heavenly father. 
Now, one of those things mentioned in that package of benefits is healing. It is sometimes said that God forgives us immediately and heals us eventually. For some, it could be in this life. For others, it will happen in the life to come. But it does come. There will be no disease, no sickness, no frailty or deformity of any kind in the eternal kingdom. Thanks be to God. All right, we need to move on. In verse 6, David widens his focus now and begins to address the entire congregation. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. Verses 6 to 10 represent a reflection upon God's past mercies to the entire covenant community at the time of the Exodus. Remember, part of the reason this psalm is placed here is because the covenant community is now in exile. They've made a mess of things. They're wondering if God can be merciful to them again in the future. So a reminder of the Exodus story would be very helpful. Derek Kidner says here, No story surpasses the Exodus for a record of human unworthiness, of grace abounding, and benefits for God. Close quote. Verses 7 to 8 here directly allude to the story in Exodus 32 to 34. So if you're trying to match up the poetic recapitulation with the original story, you want to match up verses 7 to 8 with Exodus 32 to 34. While Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, the people were down at the foot of the mountain engaged in sexual immorality and idolatry. And yet, after the intercession of Moses, God forgave them, and he revealed his essential character to Moses. And several of the words and phrases David uses here in verses 8 to 10 come directly from that encounter. So again, the editor is saying here, God forgave the sins of the people in Moses' generation, and he forgave the sins committed by David. So if he can do that, if he is willing to be that merciful, then there's every reason for us to hope that he will be merciful to us again. This is who God is. Leslie Allen says here, It was the nature of the father of the covenant people to welcome back prodigal sons. Close quote. You know, sometimes I think we overestimate the difference in terms of how God is portrayed in the Old Testament versus how he is portrayed in the New. People will sometimes talk as though God was all judgy and mad in the, in the Old Testament, but then he became a Christian. And, and so now in the New Testament, God is all merciful and loving. But that is to completely distort how God is portrayed in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. God doesn't change. He has always been a loving father. He has always chastised his children. But he never gives up on them. He always loves. He always forgives. He always restores. Verse 10 says, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. J. Alec Machir helps us understand the difference between those words. He says, Sins are actual commissions and omissions, specific misdemeanors. Iniquities points to the hidden warp or defect in human nature giving rise to sins. Close quote. 
So God doesn't deal with us in terms of what we do or who we are. He deals with us in terms of whose we are. If we are in Christ, if we are his children through the grace of adoption, then he deals with us as such. Praise the Lord. Verse 11, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. There are three comparisons here that really capture the heart of David's worship and exaltation. He says that God's love is high and overarching, like the heavens are above the earth. He, he watches us. He always sees us. He is always working a loving plan for us. Then in verse 12, the comparison is about breadth. He says that as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. W.S. Plumer has a great line here. He says, when God forgives, he forgives like a God and not like a creature. I like that. I can, As a creature, I can forgive, but I struggle to forget. Forgiveness for me is hard work, the whole process. I have to work at not seeing people in terms of the sins they have committed. It always rises to the surface, and I have to shove it back down. God doesn't have to do that. He can wave it away, and it goes away. As far as the east is from the west... God can forgive and forget. He can forgive and obliterate. Praise the Lord. Then the third comparison comes in verse 13. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. God is like a father. He is our heavenly father. And like a father, he wants us to be all that we can be. So he doesn't make peace with our shortcomings. He is at war with our sin. And since that sin is in us, sometimes it feels like he's at war with us, but he's not. He loves us. He is fiercely committed to us. He won't let us fail. He's our toughest judge and our most passionate supporter. He's a good dad. He shows compassion to those who fear him. Now, we need to stop and notice that. God is not a father to everyone in the universe. This intimate, unbreakable bond is specifically for those who fear him. The fear of the Lord refers to covenant, reverence, devotion, and obedience. It is the respect that children have for their father. So this is love inside a family. So you can't claim what is being said here from the outside. Charles Spurgeon says here, those who are presuming upon the infinite extent of divine mercy should here be led to consider that although it is wide as the horizon and high as the stars, yet it is only meant for them that fear the Lord. And as for obstinate rebels, they shall have justice without mercy measured out to them. Close quote. Psalm 103, in that sense, might be the best argument you'll ever hear in your life for Christian conversion. Become God's child through faith in Jesus Christ, and everything in this psalm can be applied to you. You can be assured that God will never give up on you. You can be assured that God will never be against you. He will discipline you and chastise you, but never to kill you, only to form you and grow you and heal you and promote you. He will always be on your team. 
But if you are not his child, then you are just one more rebellious subject. If you don't know Christ, then you won't know God as Father. You will know him as judge. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So come. Come to Christ today. Become a child of God today. Repent. Be baptized. Come in through the front door and enjoy his love and his favor forever. Verse 15. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. Remember, I mentioned that in book four, the emphasis is on the big picture, the long game that God is playing. Yes, we are in exile. Yes, the house of David is in ruin. But, but that's today. God is bigger than today. God is from everlasting to everlasting. So this isn't over. You may never live to see the outworking of God's plan, but you can trust that he will do everything he has promised for everyone who looks to him in faith. Whether soon, later, or in eternity, there's just no way for us to know the details. We just know that God keeps his promises to those who trust him. In verse 17, there is a reminder again that all of these promises are limited to a certain group of people. Willem van Gemmeren says here, The love of God is not indiscriminate. He loves those who fear him. He will forgive them, have compassion for them, and treat them as his children. Though he expects godliness, he is also understanding of the frailty of his children. Close quote. In verse 19, David begins to summon the entire cosmos into this song of worship. So we've got that next level of broadening. Verse 19, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works. In all places of his dominion, bless the Lord, O my soul. When you think about who God is and what he has done and what he is doing, then how could you not praise him? Praise befits the upright. As C.S. Lewis said, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible, closed quote. When you see how things really are, when you remember who God really is, then praise is just altogether appropriate. And so that's what David is doing here. He's, he's saying, come on, angels. Come on, cherubim. Come on, seraphim. Come on, heavenly elders. Come on, messengers and ministers. Let's all get together on this. From the highest to the lowest, let's praise the Lord. The Lord is good. He is a father to his people. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He forgives us, heals us, redeems us, crowns us, and satisfies us. Thanks be to God. Thank you, friends, for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you're interested in additional resources or previous episodes and series, you can find those at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just type Into the Word into the search bar. If you'd like to contribute to this listener-supported program, go to the website and click the Give bar in the top right corner. Once again, that's IntoTheWord.ca. We hope to see you again real soon right here for another episode of Into the Word. Thank you.